All right, a little different format here for the podcast uh, this week. What is going on? Going to just talk through a few things. This may or may not be as long as they normally are. I'm just, we're just now getting started. What are you doing? So buckle in and um, let's see, let's see where the conversation takes us. Enter an audio-visual experience like no other. Underground rap at its realist. Helping you shorten your dang learning curve. This is going to be a brief discussion on some of the requirements and recommendations as it relates to asbestos testing. It was the asbestos in here, that's what did it! For water, fire, damage, uh, reconstruction, and insurance claims responses. Should be a fun one. What would you say? You do here. 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 The Dojo Podcast. Podcast. If you happen to be watching this, um, this is my book, my third book, So You Want to Be a Project Manager, Mindset and Habits for Growth. On page 225 of the hardbound version, there is the Exhibit 6, which is the Diojo, the chart. The chart. There's two basic things you need in order to have a successful company. Why do I want this? Yeah. Because I want to make bank, bro. You need to have happy customers and you need to have profitable jobs. I want to drive a Range Rover. We all, well, I, I, I guess I can't say that. I would say we all know we need to be profitable. Not everyone understands the difference between making money and being profitable. And that might be a conversation for another time. But since I brought it up, right? By nature of the way that overhead and profit or OMP is added to the end of an Xactimate estimate, which is unique to the insurance claims process, um, a lot of people confuse the markup, the 10 and 10 markup, with your actual overhead and profitability margins. Wrong, sir. Wrong. Revenue is the income you earn by selling your products and services, right? So I've sold something for, say, $1,000. The cost of the goods sold, or COGs, is the cost and expenses that you exert to create your products or services. So if I sold something for $1,000 and my cost of goods sold um, was $500, I would have $500 as my gross profit, right? Um, so that would be a 50% margin, margin. On the other hand, if I had $1,000 um, that I had as estimated cost of goods, labors and labor and materials, and I wanted to put a 20% markup. Markup that would be $200, right? So my sale price with this 10 and 10 markup might be $1,200. But if I take the 1,200 and I minus the thousand and I get a net profitability of $200, that $200 is only 16.67% of the sale price. So my margin in that scenario 
is actually below 20%. Friends, do you ever get your butt kicked when it comes to writing drywall estimates and Xactimate? Say what? Nobody kicks my butt but me. Xactimate! People want to complain about Xactimate. Course with uh, Restoration Technical Institute. Better claims outcomes through better mindset and habits for estimating insurance claims. And out of that course, there'll be uh, a book to accompany the course and four or five kind of just real basic scenarios. So if you're keeping track, our common square foot drywall estimate is 147.20. Our common linear foot drywall repair estimate is 202.08. And the current program one that we just did was 301.16. So even program work sometimes beats some of y'all. <laughs> writing crappy estimate what you're doing is terrific this yeah. outlet the dojo podcast. podcast folks should be listening to you so your net profit is what you have after all the real cost of goods and general overhead expenses you know the things that you that aren't direct costs we hear all the time it's the cost of doing business yeah it is the cost of doing business that's why i'm charging for it that's why i'm charging for it but your overhead expenses, all those things behind the scenes that aren't necessarily directly charged to the job. Did you pay the gas bill? Hey. Do you realize what you done? I'm sorry. I said we bail. Okay. I would argue labor supervisory, that's a direct cost. You need to charge. That's why I'm charging for it. I was on site with a contractor and there was five or six of us meeting there, right? And so I was explaining, you know, in construction, supervisory is important, right? If we're not there making sure the right materials got delivered, that the crew's doing the right scope, that um, we're separating what scope is and isn't part of the insurance company, we're keeping things rolling. This particular project had a really high ALE, additional living expense, and so there was... Um, some value being added by the contractor expediting things and he can only expedite it by being there on site. Now, as devil's advocate though, if I were going to bill for that at the end of the job and say, hey, we overran on supervisory, I might look at that log entry for that date saying, you know, I had six administrative staff for supervisories, project managers on site on that particular day did I really need all six of them there? Do you realize what you Or was it because, you know, the consultant was there uh, doing a training and really that wasn't... So there was one person there maybe related to the actual job that, that would be a realistic charge. Now, you might, if everybody's there learning something, doing something related to that job, you might put all five or six on there, but maybe put a red line through and show those as credits. So you demonstrate we're being reasonable, you know, we were being transparent with um, the activity we had on the job site, but we're being reasonable with the charges that we're trying to make. So those supervisory, a lot of people are tempted or cajoled into including that in their overhead, but supervisory as it relates to the project is, should be considered direct cost if you're asking me and many others in the industry. Um, so you got your general overhead plus your net net profit equals your budgeted gross margin. In that sale, the $1,000 sale with $500 cost of goods with the $500 uh, gross profit, 
maybe out of that 30% is our um, overhead. So, you know, maybe $300 is going to overhead and $200 is our actual profitability. The only way you know what your overhead is, is to actually track, you know, your costs, um, you know, over time and to understand, you know, you should have a goal. I mean, a lot of people have been talking lately that around 30% is a, is a decent average. Because I want to make bank, bro. Um, you know, and there's some indicators, you know, if you're growing your company, your overhead might expand as you're trying to add resources and grow into where you're headed. Um, but overhead can also be an indication that you're too top-heavy. I want to drive a Range Rover. So um, those, those numbers are important. And then your profitability is, you know, well, what are your goals? What are you investing in? What are you reinvesting in the company? All those kinds of things. So ooh, I remember having another conversation with the contractor who said they, they were getting ready to sign a contract for $400,000, um, but the job was at policy limits, and the adjuster told them that they short-scoped. And so we went through and discussed that, and it's like the larger the sale price, the revenue, um, the bigger the impact can be if things are missed from the sense you think there's more fluff in it, right? But that's not always the case. If it's a large project, you may need every dime, right? And if it's at policy limits, that means there's no more money to draw from as it relates to the insurance companies. You have to be real clear with the customer on what is and isn't covered, and if there's any supplements, change orders, or say a code compliance issue, and that policy is maxed out, that's going to be 100% the responsibility of the customer, most likely. So, do you realize what you Just because the revenue item is big, you can still lose money. A company has to make money in order to survive. Your company needs to be treated like an entity that has a certain level of profitability and overhead that are required for it to function and for it to grow. You're like, hey, we're making money right now. Right now we're making money. We've been talking a lot amongst restorers and in episodes and at the RIA uh, in the pricing committee about overhead and profit, educating contractors and helping people in the broader uh, skilled trades understand profitability and overhead expenses and properly accounting for those. And so that's, if you focus on the money, sometimes you can struggle to make your customers happy. And so what you want to do, what I argue for in the book is training your people to um, make the customer happy and then continue to train on that as well as how to be profitable because if you focus on making the customer happy, I believe you can find ways to be profitable um, and, and better understand that because a lot of the things that the customer wants align with profitability. They, For the most part, they want the job done, right? And we all know that the key to profitability is getting the job done, doing it the right way, but get it done. The longer it drags out, the less likely that the customer is going to be happy, the less likely that you have leverage with the parties that are paying. Also, if you're sitting on the money, the longer you sit on the money, the, the less valuable it becomes. You're, you're a bank at a very terrible interest rate. So there's an alignment there between getting the job done expediently and efficiently that joins, syncs up the happy customer with the profitable job. You cannot, you cannot do it excellently. Oh, 
If you want to change your mindset and habits, it all starts with being able to do it right, do it efficiently, and do it excellently. You cannot do it excellently if you first don't know how to do it right. In the Diojo chart, there's the proficiency aspect of what we do, which is divided into practical and technical training. This is where we become doctors of disaster. There's the efficiency aspect, which is planning and execution. And primarily, we want to do it right the first time. You've heard us talk about speed, the scan, plan, execute, and document. And then there's the service aspect, which is cleanliness and communication. But at the core of the Diojo chart is safety. We all talk about safety first, safety first. But um, if you're not taking into account assessing the risks and hazards on the job site, and then having um, plans for how you're going to account for and deal with those. No job is without risks or hazards. They're always there. It's a matter of have we done a, jo a good job identifying them and having a plan to keep our people as safe as possible. Awareness is the first part of that. And then the proper um, remedial measures. And then PPE is that last line of defense. A lot of times people want to boast about their PPE. That's your last line of defense, not your first. You know, your first is your job site, your environmental controls. Um, well, the first is the identification then the remediation plan, then the environmental controls, and then your PPE. So some of that's covered in this book. So you want to be a project manager. We talk a lot about it as it comes up um, in these podcast episodes. But please educate yourself and make safety a priority. Home of the Nation. One important factor affecting restoration contractors and contractors in general that um, are trying to do things the right way. The testing requirements. I live in the state of Washington. If you read the um, regulations in the state, our version of OSHA is called Labors and in Labor and Industries. You go to uh, Labor and Industries, licensing and permits, other licenses and other permits, asbestos certification, has this comment here, building owners and construction contractors both share responsibility for asbestos testing when doing work on the building. A good faith inspection for asbestos performed by an AHERA certified building inspector is required before any remodel, repair, removal, or other work that could disturb suspect materials. Elsewhere in the document, it talks about it really doesn't matter the age of the building when it was um, built. On here, it was the asbestos in here. That's what did it. One of our most recent articles on the Diojo blog at this time, helping you shorten your dang learning curve, is asbestos testing requirements for water damage. Um, and this was sparked by a conversation with a local contractor, uh, mitigation contractor that was getting some pushback for doing asbestos testing in. The April 2022 uh, edition of uh, CLM Claims and Litigation Management Magazine. The cover story of all things, this is for primarily adjusters and claims uh, personnel. Uh, it gets a makeover. Why cosmetic talc litigation is paving a more dangerous path than traditional asbestos ever did. Um, so the author does a pretty good job of um, talking about some of the history of asbestos, the reality of back in October 2021, Johnson & Johnson sought to resolve more than 38,000 talc-related lawsuits. This is asbestos in things including children's 
makeup. I think it's important, assume first education, right? Maybe you're not aware. Can I help you understand? Um, episode 82 of the Diojo podcast was with Stephen Patrick talking about the value of using questions in negotiations and when you face objections. Bring the Diojo podcast firing up. When yeah. dealing with an adjuster, 90% of every word that comes out of your mouth, every sentence should be in the form of a question. Ready to take on the dang world. Stephen Patrick. <laughs> the value of using questions in um just business in general, but also in the claims process. Um, one of the publications within your industry that's talking about asbestos. This is very real currently. I was at the dump. I was actually uh, d dumping some uh, personal items at the at the refuse station in Puyallup, Washington, beautiful Puyallup, Washington. And there's this sign here. It says, contractors, all demo jobs are required to have an asbestos abatement survey completed per Puget Sound Clean Air Agency. We require a copy of the survey prior to disposal. All demo materials must be free or less than 1% containing asbestos. Most states have similar um, rules. I know I've worked in Oregon and in California, California likely being the most stringent. You know, just so you are aware, you've probably covered this in, this is our IICRC S500, the standard and reference guide for professional water damage restoration. This is the 2006 version, so it's a little bit older. Assuming that some of you are just getting your start, I don't want to take for granted that you know what the IICRC is, the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. This is the certifying body um, of our industry. They're uh, courses are ANSI certified, the approved American National Standard. And so here's a little advertisement. They are a sponsor of the podcast, thankfully. And here's a little bit about who the IICRC is and what it does. Hi, I'm Kayla, the communications manager here at the IICRC. Are you looking to start a career in the inspection, cleaning, and restoration industries? We're here to help. For five decades, the IICRC has developed globally recognized standards and certifications for the demand for professionals within the industry. We offer over 20 certifications live stream and in person. For additional information, go to IICRC.org. Our IICRC S500, the, in page 14, it talks about special situations if a regulated or hazardous material is part of a water damage restoration project then a specialized expert may be necessary to assist in damage assessment and government regulations apply. Regulated materials posing potential or recognized health risks may include but are not limited to, so these are things we should be aware of even in addition to asbestos, arsenic, mercury, lead, asbestos, polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs, pesticides, fuels, solvent, caustic chemicals, radiological residues. For situations involving visible or suspected mold, refer to IICRC S520, Standard and Reference Guide for Professional Mold Remediation. So it, safety is a critical component to help keep yourself, your company, your people, and your customers out of trouble or harm's way. This AHERA Certified Building Inspector, the um, certification required to inspect school buildings, you know, provide surveys and those kinds of things. But a lot of good can be had, even if you don't plan to do in-house testing. Our state does allow it. 
to the best of my knowledge. Um, but there's still a lot of misinformation about how many samples should be taken from which materials and where. Asbestos. I know in Oregon, we our policy was to try to do it ourselves, number one, for the speed. You know, it, it's difficult at times to get a third party out there quick enough to do the testing so that it doesn't impact your work longer than it needs to. Um, so it's, it's tricky, you know, if you're going to be requiring that and promoting that, trying to either make sure that you have internal resources or good third party resources that can quickly, you know, get to the site and those kinds of things. We have had feedback from local contractors that are finding it hard to get industrial hygienists, indoor environmental professionals, um, you know, IH, IEP, those kinds of things, people that will work with them, assist, and and um, be a partner, partnerships, a partner in that process of putting protocols and testing together. And so that can be difficult as well, which may encourage you to try to have in-house resources. I know in some states that's prohibited. This is another book, um, I believe, available to the general public published by ehsmaterials.com. It's the EPA Asbestos Contractor slash Supervisor Manual that I received at one of my courses over the years. And the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, what most of us refer to as OSHA, have established three sets of regulations that address asbestos exposure. So this is in specific to your responsibility to protect your workers what you could be responsible for as an owner or manager or anybody in a leadership position. I hope you like the taste of prison food. So you've got the 29 CFR 1910.1001, which is general industry. You've got the 29 CFR 1926.1101, which is the construction industry. And the 29 CFR 1910.134, which is use of respirators general. If you go to OSHA's top 10 violations for fiscal year 2021, number one is fall protection general. And that comes down to even just ladder safety um, and even um, low pitch roofs and those kinds of things. Um, but since we brought up respiratory protection as part of the OSHA rules, this standard directs employees on employers on establishing or maintaining a respiratory protection program. It lists requirements for program administrator, administration, worksite specific procedures, respirator selection, employee training, fit testing, medical evaluations, respirator use, and respirator cleaning, maintenance, and repair. Top five sections cited. Um, number two, the employer shall ensure all employee using a tight-fitting face piece respirator is fit tested prior to initial use of the respirator. Whenever a different respirator face piece, size, style, model, or make is used, and at least annually thereafter. So this is still getting cited. People are giving people respirators, not properly training them or ensuring that the respirator fits properly at the outset or how to, you know, properly test to see whether you're getting, ad, you know, adhesion to the face. So you're wearing a respirator, but you're not sure that it's working. So we got fall protection, number one, respiratory protection, number two, ladders, number three, scaffolding, number four, hazard communication. Um, just not communicating, not identifying or communicating hazards, lockout, tag out. Can you even imagine that's like, you know, somebody's working on the power and somebody hasn't properly locked it out so that somebody can just accidentally inadvertently light them up. Fall protection training requirements, personal protective and life-saving equipment, eye and face protection, eye and face protection, powered industrial trucks and machine guarding. You know, yeah, that's, you know, you're either dismantled or disabled the, um, 
the uh, guards. But uh, fall protection general, 4,200 total violations. And then willful violations, um, 155. So that's just general, you know, OSHA out there checking on things and then um, people getting in trouble for not following through or not documenting what their processes are. Most of what we do, if you do mold remediation properly, you know, things like um, confirming your negative air, getting full containment, uh, sealing off the intakes, um, you know, uh, limiting cross-contamination, getting four air changes per hour, so calculating whether you have the right air uh, scrubber, air mover in your uh, scenario. Those all come out of the asbestos abatement industry. Um, so it's important. These are important things to be aware of. Um, educate yourself and make sure that you're protecting yourself and your team. And then they're good resources for educating your client on why our company maybe does it a little bit different or why um, they should be comparing apples to apples when they're um, getting multiple bids for multiple contractors. If you want me to take a dump in a box and mark it guaranteed, I will. I got spare time. But for now, for your customer's sake, for your daughter's sake, you might want to think about buying a quality product from me. One of the other points of feedback we got from restorers and commenting on this was working for property owners or property managers and them saying, well, nobody else does this. Why are you guys so stringent? You know, come on, it's the 1980s, right? Those kinds of things. And if you just do even a precursory look, uh, a review of asbestos, it's still being produced. It's still being used in products. And there's been instances where, you know, in times when our reserves of drywall, you know, after um, hurricanes and those kinds of things have tapped out our internal resources that we've gotten materials from elsewhere around the world. And even modern materials are coming back with higher than 1% you know, levels of asbestos. So it's definitely something to, to be aware of um, and to factor into your health and safety protocols for your team. Let's just talk about IICS, uh, IICRCS 520 is probably one of the most recognized mold remediation standards, right? right. Speaking of protocols for your team, um, there are some restoration contractors that provide abatement services. Uh, I don't think that's as common as people that would provide mold remediation services in the majority of our audience. So the voice you're hearing is Amy Sidlecki. She is with the Mold Reporters out of Portland, Oregon, someone I've done a lot of work with and have a lot of respect for. And she's talking about the IICRC S520, which is the applied, the AMRT, the Applied Microbial Remediation Technician Standard. Guys, yeah. if you're out there, remediation <laughs> contractors, get this book. <laughs> Read it. Yep. Those are written pretty much based on this standard. So when I see that they say we're going to come in and apply massive amounts of chemicals and then we're going to fog, that's not in there. Yeah. And then their estimate says they're using those methodologies. Yeah. So. You know, if you're going to quote a methodology that you're going to uh, propose the remediation, make sure you're following the, the protocol. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's going to come back and bite you if you haven't done it correctly. There's two points I want to make here about the IICRC standards, and I think Amy's comments speak to both of those. So first, a good question is, should 
you'd be quoting the IICRC standards, the S500 or S520, S500 for water or S520 for mold, in your contracts and your proposals. I try to comply with the standard of care, but do not write into your contract that you're going to perform the work according to IICRC standards. You're hearing the voice of Ed Cross, the restoration lawyer, talk about uh, his insights into um, developing, uh, being a part of the process of developing the industry standards and um, what role they play in educating the restorer, but not necessarily being uh, something that you want to 100% marry yourself to in the language of your contract. That doesn't mean that you don't follow the standards, but you need to be careful about what language goes into your proposals and your contracts. If you'd like to know more about Ed, he was, I believe, guest number three on the Diojo podcast uh, when it got started. We also did an extended article, A History of Collaboration, A Future of Advocacy, which kind of mirrored Ed's rise in the industry um, and, and parallels that with some of the development of the Restoration Industry Association. Ed, coincidentally, got his start out suing contractors and... Um, and when they were getting sued, they actually asked him, hey, can you come talk to us about how not to get sued? And now he's dedicated his career to representing contractors, restoration contractors specifically. Does a lot of good work with the uh, Advocacy and Government Affairs Committee and his law practice in California. Do not write into your contract that you're going to perform the work according to IICRC standards. Don't put that in your contracts. It's not going to help you sell any jobs. It's going to marry you to these thick documents. They're hundreds of pages long. And all the plaintiff's attorney has to do is point to one sentence in there that you didn't strictly comply with. And they'll be able to shout about, you know, breach of contract in addition to the negligence claim. You don't need that kind of headache. Do not have the IICRC initials in your contract. So the first point made by Ed in regards to um, being careful about the language you put in your proposals and your contracts. Uh, the second point being, I think there's this idea, I, I took this class, um, I put this note in my contract, um, but like Ed's saying, incorporating what you learn in a classroom environment into a real-world scenario just because there's deviations does not mean that it's wrong. It also doesn't mean that it's right. Can you describe what you're doing and why? Does it make sense to other professionals and to your customer? Is it in compliance with the overall purview of the standard or of a protocol that's been written and agreed to? Um, and so this is it which is good this is amy's bringing this point up because a lot of people say well i follow iicrc and then what they do is exactly the opposite as you mentioned we're very meticulous about you know our our processes yeah doing the the uh, cross-contamination prevention during sampling photo documentation following published written protocols right. and everything that we do. So if you are doing a shoddy job, that could be a problem. We had, um, I've had cases where, you know, remediations were done where complete rescissions of houses have been uh, 
obtained by homeowners after buying when oh. somebody told them it was done correctly. I've seen real estate people lose their license temporarily. Just do the job right. Keep your book keeping and your, your records keeping in shape and yeah. you, you shouldn't have a problem and it shouldn't be a problem if a consultant, whether me or anybody else is saying, here's the protocol. Can you follow it? Yes, yeah. we can. It's going to cost X, Y, Z. Yeah. To take that protocol and then go and have somebody spray or paint over a mold problem, yeah. it's only going, it's very probable that it could wind up in, in trouble. Referencing another magazine from the Claims Tribe, this is NU Claims, covering the business of loss has an article on claims management it says everything old is new again so it is unlikely younger adjusters know about ballard versus farmers insurance group the case with an initial 32 million dollar verdict against the insurer for bad faith claims handling most people assume ballard is about mold and it is but the case is also about the superior knowledge that adjusters have and failure to inform the claimant of that superior knowledge. The author talks about um, some of the history, the plumbing link in 1998. I remember when I got into the industry, what, 2002, this was still a hot topic, um, claims handling processes. There's some, and the importance of good communication. So this is actually one of the topics we're discussing in our local um, Washington Pacific Northwest uh, networking group. We're here with Rich Rye from 1-800-WATER-DAMAGE. What are we doing here, Rich? We are discussing the great meeting we're going to have for everybody on Tuesday. I'm looking forward to meeting you. The Fellowship of Construction Knowledge and Entrepreneurial Development. Um, we're having a public adjuster come in and talk about the elements that go into bad faith, I think we throw that around. So just because someone objects to your line items does not mean that they're practicing bad faith. Wrong, sir. Wrong. You know, there's legal elements that go into that. Um, but as it relates to this article, um, there's some things in there talking about toxic mold. I think some of us would object to you know toxinogenic and those kinds of things some some distinctions that can be made that there's still some some poor understanding of some of the elements there but um all in all a good reminder of you know the litigious nature that's driven a lot of the policies uh, these are you know publications that you can find that are industry adjacent but not directly tied to restoration and there's lots of good information out there. The other thing that I think is is a big issue right now and, and should be pointed out is contractors and consultants making health claims. So that make me their doctor? Uh, yes, in a way. Our job is to make sure a house is you know, normal fungal ecology, clear of water damage, clear of, you know, mold amplification. Yeah. And it's not to tell somebody, oh, you won't be sick in the house or, oh, you are sick in the house because you have this mold. And so many are crossing that line. Unless you have an MD after your name, yeah. your job is just to, to evaluate the home. And yes, we get calls all the time from people because they're having symptoms. Yeah. That's yeah. a good indicator, but our job is to find the problem 
as far as mold. And you can have a completely clear mold job and, and you cannot, you should not tell that client, it's clear, the consultant cleared it, you're, you're safe to live here now. Do you realize what you've done? Because yeah. there could be other things, rodent problems, formaldehyde, VOCs, you know, benzene, toluene, all kinds of problems that could be making somebody sick in the house. Or just general house cleaning, right? I mean, how many times have we been called out and, and, and people are worried about this one by one spot of mold, yep. you know, behind something or another. <laughs> and it's like their house is, you know, just in, uh, I mean, it's disgusting, right? I mean, you go, it is. and the dust, the dirt and the dust, uh, reservoirs. And interestingly, yeah. if the house is maintained humid and in some environments like that, it is, you get a biofilm. So all yeah. that dust, you get yeah. settled spores and it becomes a mold issue yeah. as well. Well, we have a few blasts from the past. Uh, Amy Sidlecki, um, that's from uh, my time in Oregon, um, both when I had my own company and working for a contractor to start up a restoration company within their existing company. And um, it's always fun to reconnect or, or re-associate the listeners with a former episodes. So... That's one you might want to go back and look at, uh, especially if you're involved in mold remediation. Um, this is the Diojo podcast. Our goal is to inform you and entertain you, what we call infotainment. We are self-funded. Um, you know, when you buy a book, we have three currently with the fourth one coming out, How to Not Suck at Estimating. Better Claims outcomes the Diojo. through better mindset and habits for estimating insurance claims okay. a lot of the principles are those that come out of my mediocre book be intentional estimating okay. uh, which will also be in collaboration with one of our sponsors the restoration technical institute a course that will be coming out so working on trying to get that wrapped up um, thank you for just so many of the peers that have reviewed that give given some valuable input and insights on to how to make things a little more clearer or um you know completely eliminate certain elements of that but um through restoration technical institute i also met office services by brandy brandy hawthorne this just came in the mail today um if you're listening you're not going to be seeing that but it's wow keep it up you rock hashtag restoring kindness I know our friend Michelle Blevins at uh, CNR Magazine um, is a key in getting the Restoring Kindness um, promoted and out there, but just the efforts all around by restorers to do good in your local neighborhood. And this was a fun thing that Brandy sent out. With friends, I like to have fun, 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 fun! Office Services by Brandy is a... Um, sponsor of the podcast along with the restoration uh, industry association and as previously seen the iicrc the institute of cleaning and restoration certification so thank you for listening um, and if you've gotten this far you're almost there so on the topic of uh, certification right we talk a lot about the the new book coming up is how not to suck at estimating Habits for Better Project Outcomes. So there's certification even for Xactimate, the common tool used in estimating in our industry. So we had Brian Austin on from Verisk, from their learning platform. 
and he was talking. I was able to ask him. That was part of our Xactimate Sessions series, our second series from the Dojo podcast. If if well, here I'll I'll you'll see the interaction right now. Is it true? If I'm level three certified, anytime someone rejects my estimate, and how dare you? I can pull the certification out. Here's my certification. It will just cower. <laughs> I wish that was true. I think one important distinction in our industry is to know that the standards, things such as the IIC, IICRC S500, the water damage standard, these are um, not regulatory in nature. They are voluntary. So we have their consensus-based standards, the best of what everybody can agree on that is on the panels. And if you read the first parts of any of those versions, you can see all the people that contributed hours and hours to these stellar documents, but you got to understand they are voluntary. One of the best explanations of this that I've heard comes from Ken Larson's book. I'm breaking everything here. Leadership in Restorative Drying by Ken Larson. He was a guest on the podcast, and you can view that. But he talks about standard practice. So I'm doing standard practice is a phrase used to describe practices normally and regularly performed by professionals of a trade. A standard practice can vary significantly by geographic region. They may or may not reflect competence. So I'm just doing what everybody else is doing is not going to cut it. That's not what we're talking about. Just because so-and-so doesn't do it or does do it, especially as it relates to asbestos. So talked about our standards in our industry and restoration are voluntary. Standards as it relates to asbestos are regulatory. Therefore, they're law. There's law behind them. And the penalties are, you know, fines, jail time, you know, prison time, you know, those kinds of things. So up from standard practice is standard of care is the structural uh, uh, practices that are common to reasonably prudent members of the trade who are recognized in the industry as qualified and competent. Qualified and competent. You've gone through some level of education and training, both hands-on and in the classroom, and exhibited that you can pass a test. So that is important. Um, IICRC has talked about doing a better job you know, in partnership with the RAA with creating avenues for career development, you know, professionalizing our industry, having us recognized um, our, our certifications, certificated programs recognized in the realm of electricians and plumbers. They have to have hours and hours of competence, you know, under the apprenticeship with somebody who's done it. We try to model after that. The companies that um, are doing the best are modeling that, but... Um, Standard of care is a step up from standard practice, but understand if you're following the IICRC S500, you're following the consensus. That's the baseline. That's not the end all. That is, this is the baseline. This is where we start. This is what we all should at minimum be doing. I was listening to all of the experts on the committee talk this is back in the 90s, 1990s, and I, I realized that no matter what we were able to come up with as a scenario, there was almost always some sort of exception to it. And then somebody else would come up with an exception to the exception. You're again hearing the silky smooth voice of Ed Cross, the restoration lawyer, 
talking about providing some historical context to the development of the S-500 and some of his recommendations, which we talked about earlier, about how restorers incorporate the standards of practice um, or the standards of care into their efforts, but um, also being mindful of exceptions to the standards because not every scenario can be accounted for. And I proposed that ISCRC add some language to indicate that in certain circumstances, deviation from the standard of care may actually be appropriate depending on the circumstances, because it's not really feasible to write one document that can apply to every single uh, conceivable type of a, a restoration scenario. There's just way too many variables to consider. So IICRC agreed, and you'll notice in the big fat disclaimer section in the beginning of the book, there's something indicating that in certain circumstances, deviation from the standard of care may be appropriate. Standardized anything may be helpful in terms of giving us a guidance point somewhere to start. This is like the discussion we've been having about Xactimate pricing. That is a starting point to begin the preparation of an estimate. Okay, you look to the IICRC standards and give them very careful consideration. You want to do your best to try to comply with the IICRC standards. But if your back is against the wall, uh, you want to look to this escape hatch that we put into uh, the disclaimer to say, hey, under this particular set of circumstances, deviation from what's in the printed standard was actually appropriate. Here are the reasons why. Here's the evidence supporting it. And the way we did it is actually the better way. So Ken talks about then their state of the art, which refers to the highest level of general development. This is where you're continuing with that mindset and habits of growing and learning more. He talks about his book has the vision of improving the practices that are common to reasonably prudent members of the trade who are recognized as qualified and competent and <clears throat> elevating that. So especially those of you that are just getting started and may not be aware, um, this is this is important because you know, this not only people can get sick, people can die. Um, you can get uh, heavy, heavy fines or even prison time. You know, so please reach out um, to other restorers in your local area. Find out what best practices are, you know, for your area. And then on a national level, and make sure that you're keeping yourself, your, your team and your customer. Educate your customer. We are doing this to keep you safe, especially a property owner or a property manager. A multifamily situation, you do not want to have uh, unnecessary exposure um, just for a lack of knowledge or um, bad protocols in your um, process for mitigation and remediation. So even if you don't plan to do asbestos testing or remediation internally, it would be beneficial, uh, whether it's yourself as the owner or one of your management team, or your safety personnel if you have that developed of an organization to take the course or be well educated in those areas because um, asbestos lead those are elements you know prior to starting any work in a water or fire damage project or doing any kind of demolition or even if you're like us on the repair side making sure that those um, tests have been done so that way the site is safe. So there's the Ahara uh, building inspector. There's asbestos awareness courses. 
one of the best overall courses I took from the IICRC um, was the HST, the Health and Safety Technician. I believe that was designed around 10-hour OSHA, but OSHA offers 10- and 30-hour training. Um, the hazards awareness or the basic awareness is definitely recommended. The 10-hour is, is a great course, um, especially foremen, supervisors, those kinds of things. And then the OSHA 30-hour, that should be required of most managers and especially project managers that are directly involved in you know, um, directing in-house labor as well as subcontractors just to have that additional layer of health and safety awareness around the OSHA guidelines. Most states have their version of local OSHA. I know in Oregon we had the DEQ, Department of Environmental Quality. Um, In Washington we have the Clean Air Associations, or the Clean, in Washington we have the Clean Air Agencies in different regions. There's regions of OSHA, um, you know, uh, things like the Master Builders Association. I know RIA has a new, I think it's the ERS course, which talks about hazards abatement um, and remediation, which I believe asbestos is part of that. Um, And most of the water damage courses now, I believe, uh, mention that or should discuss elements of that. Um, It's encouraging. Most contractors we talk to are well aware of that and doing everything they can, but um, we do get those outliers where people are saying, hey, these guys, this company will do it without ever doing that testing. They don't worry about it as long as it's after the 80s, those kinds of things. So um, some education for the public and our customers is good, and then obviously education within the industry. And um, if you hear someone say that about one of your competitors, maybe it's a good opportunity to call and say, hey, are you aware, you know, we were at such and such property manager and they mentioned that, you know, if they mentioned someone specifically, they mentioned that you don't do any asbestos testing. That's not what I heard. I, I believe you guys run a clean shop, you know, and then <coughs> obviously if they're belligerent, then maybe you might have to take other steps. But if they're like, what? No, we test everything. You know, that's a, a good reminder that you're you're competing with the right kind of people, right? And um, you want to promote that. And uh, start with education, assume the best, and then um, go from there. As a way to promote the upcoming book and course, How Not to Suck at Estimating, Habits for Better Project Outcomes, I thought I'd read you a small excerpt. Setting yourself up for success. If you get past this sentence, you have made the commitment to read a book titled, How Not to Suck at Estimating. So either you are willing to admit that you, or someone you know, (laughs) needs some assistance in the estimating department. If you bought this book, Does it mean you suck at estimating? No. No, you're good. You're good, bro. If someone bought you this book, does it mean that you suck at estimating? No. No, 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 no. I personally love it when people are able to take a word or a concept that I commonly use and expose that I've been using it incorrectly. Whether it's a book, a podcast, or even a movie, Those aha moments have a way of sticking with me when I am slapped around by simple logic. To that end, one of the best books on personal development that I have ever read emerged from within our industry. Shout out to Rachel Stewart, 
then Executive VP of Titan Restoration and now CEO founder of Accelerate Restoration Software, wrote Unqualified Success. She flipped the idea of sucking on its head when she said the only qualification to get better being willing to suck when you start. Maybe you don't suck, but you would like to elevate your ability to consistently achieve better project outcomes. Join the club. I'll do my best to share what I have learned over two decades in this industry, but understand you are not alone. You are not alone. Speaking, I am here with you. Hopefully this episode has given you a lot to think about with regards to um, building a culture of safety. Um, A lot of things go into building a culture. We wrote a book on culture with some of our friends, uh, Be Intentional Culture. It's book number two from the Diojo and the Be Intentional series. But one thing to remember is your culture is not what you say per per se. (laughs) Ha ha ha. But your culture is what you do. So the question isn't really uh, whether you have a culture, a workplace culture. The question is whether you have been intentional in developing it. So continuing to educate yourself, um, whether you're an owner, a manager, or an aspiring professional, um, working to educate your team members and make the elements that you understand related to safety and efficiency and proficiency accessible and actionable by everybody in the organization. So whether whether you're a technician, estimator, project manager, um, general manager, or an owner, that's everybody's responsibility. Obviously, if you're further up the ladder or the food chain and the rules don't apply to you, that's going to affect how other people follow through on them as well. So you need to, in order to get to eliminate or close the gap on that dissonance to bring into harmony the things that you say are um, your expectations or your standards and then the norms what you're actually doing you know what we say needs to be brought into compliance with what we do and that has to be from the bottom up as well as the top down Back to a small excerpt from the book, How Not to Suck at Estimating. Having some guiding principles around scope capture is helpful for every team member. Robert Harrell, adjuster turned contractor turned software specialist, whom I had a lovely conversation with at the Restoration Industry Association event in Reno this year, shares that there are four key elements of a solid scope. Element number one, the product name or identification. Example, drywall. Element number two, quality. Example, half-inch smooth coat finish. Element number three, quantity. Example, 96 square feet. Element number four, repair methodology. Example, remove and replace. 
In practice, these four elements would lead the estimator or anyone capturing project details to consistently ask four questions. So if you are an estimator and commonly miss items that affect your ability to write a complete scope, dot, dot, dot. If you are a manager and your team members commonly miss items that lead to poor project outcomes, dot, dot, dot. If you are an owner and are frustrated by low profit margins, dot, 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 it's time to create and hold team members accountable to the consistent practice of thorough data capture, TDC, which we'll address in module three. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. As a contractor, customers always ask, when can you get started? Well, I just got here and we don't have an agreed scope or cost. Right, 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 I get that, but when can you get started? Agreed scope and cost, contract and deposit.